Well, good evening. Um, my name's Chris, and I can talk today, which I'm grateful for. Um, thankful for Chad and just uh, all his work. And um, um, but um, tonight, I am excited about tonight. Um, I'm going to slip out uh, because we have dinner with the pastor tonight, and uh, we're full. Uh, we've had uh, we've had more folks that wanted to come to dinner with the pastor, but to join our church. Uh, but we've had to encourage them to come in March, and uh, that's a great problem to have. And um, so I'm going to be slipping up to our dinner with the pastor here in just a minute. But you are in phenomenal hands tonight, and I'm excited about uh, this evening. We have a guest with us, with Rob. Um, he, Dr. Heath Thomas is going to be with us tonight. He's a uh, uh, what's your title at OBU? He's the Dean of the College of Theology and Ministry at Oklahoma Baptist University. And, um, and, and Heath was in a famous Sunday school class one day. Uh, I was his teacher. Uh, and, um, and I was at OBU, and um, I was working at Council Road where, where – where I came from, from to be your pastor, but Heath was, uh, his dad was the pastor of the church, and Heath was a sophomore in high school and in my Sunday school class, and uh, the night before this famous Sunday school class, Robin broke up with me, um, and it was a real bummer in my life, because I knew real quickly that, uh, Robin's back there, she wanted to say hi, um, Heath, Robin's waving at you. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's okay, babe. Um, it was a great moment. So, so it was a terrible day at church because we were doing this I Love My Church Day. And, um, and this guy named Brian Bruss uh, who had this big heart costume on. And uh, he comes walking into the office and he makes up this song saying, singing telegram from Robin to Chris. And I go, Brian. She broke up with me last night. And he was like, sorry. And he walks out. And uh, so I'm, I'm upset. I go into the class with these, I think, I don't know how many guys were in there. We can't remember who all was in there. But <clears throat> I go into this class to, to teach a lesson. And right when I said, open your Bibles, I start crying. And uh, so all these guys are like, dude, it's kind of weird that you're crying. And, uh, and so... But I knew I wasn't going to get better than Robin. I, mean, I knew I was in trouble. So, but thankfully, I hung on long enough, and Robin, she, she went out with me again. So it was great. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 12. Okay, Jesus uh, gave us the great, the great commission, and that drives us. The great commission drives us to go share the gospel with people all over the world. And, uh, and, and all through history, the Great Commission has driven God's people to, to pass on the gospel. But Jesus also gave us the Great Commandment. In Mark chapter 12, it's, and now, it's funny tonight, on a, on a lesson that we talk about, can we trust the Bible, I have an error. Uh, it's actually not make 12, 28 through 31, it's Mark. So sorry, that was a mistake there. Uh, but Mark chapter 12, verse 28, the great commandment is this. And one of the scribes came up, to, up and heard them disputing with one another. 
And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And, and I want us to uh, hear that great commandment tonight, that we're to love God with, uh, we, we're to understand that he's one, there's one God, that, that we're to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, and then we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. So this, the, the heart of this class is one of those one of those opportunities where we are striving to fulfill the great commandment, which we're stretching one another. We're pushing one another to love the Lord with our mind. You know, as a, as a follower of Christ, we've got to learn to think. And, and, and I, I pray that our church is full of, of passionate believers who, who think and who are not afraid of the, of the challenges that come our way. Because let me tell you something. Um, the, the, uh, Satan is going to come against us with, with questions. And we don't have to be afraid of questions and challenges to our faith. And, and when we hear those challenges, we need to learn to respond to those challenges. And tonight, that's part of our journey. Um, and, and we're going to push one another, continue to push one another to love the Lord with our, our mind tonight. And I'm grateful that, that Dr. Thomas is here. I love calling him that um, because I knew him when he was a punk sophomore in high school. Um, but God has, God has given us two men tonight. Rob Lewis, who's one of ours, who has challenged me and my love of the Lord with my mind and, and has, 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 is continuing to wrestle through that mental sweat of God, I'm not going to back away from questions and doubts. And I want you to know that when the world comes up with a new question, really there's probably not any new questions, but when the world comes up with this the, these ideas that think, oh, man, we're really smart. We're going to debunk the Bible. We're going to disprove God's plan for the world. No, um, we don't have to be afraid. And we don't have to run and hide. We can confront these questions, and that's what we're going to do tonight. Let's pray together, and then we're going to dive in. Lord Jesus, we uh, hear your call. And tonight, I pray that you would lead us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us. Father, as we um, confront the questions that we need to learn how to answer, so I pray that you would guide our time tonight. I thank you for Heath being here, and I thank you for Rob tonight, and I pray that you would guide us in our study. Lord, we, we, we really want to hear from you, Lord. So we ask that you would lead us in Jesus' name. Amen.
So what we have done so far is we've laid the groundwork. We looked at the uh, history of, of the beliefs that we hold to with the Word of God. We looked at uh, the central theme of the Old Testament and the New Testament is Christology. Uh, we, we went through the canon last week, and we took a look at how we got the canon, how it was developed. Can anyone tell me what uh, the major assertion was last week, the major claim uh, against us? Where, where, what was that na- major claim? How did, we, how did they say we got the canon? That video we watched, do you remember? Constantine gave us the canon. Uh, what, what was our response to that? had nothing to do with it, right? So he was referencing the Council of Nicaea in 325, which said nothing on the canon. Uh, it had to do with the uh, divinity of Christ. So we, we wrestled through that. Well, this week, we're going to take a look at reliability. So we went origin, history, canon. This week, we're going to look at reliability, and we have uh, Dr. Heath Thomas here to help us wrestle with this a little bit. Before we get started, I'm going to have him come up here in just a second. Um, but we want to preface this with the Article 14 and Article 18 from the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, and you have it written down here. Um, and so I just want to read these real quick, and, and we will talk through these. We're not going to unpack these right now, but part of what we will be doing is wrestling with these concepts tonight. So the first one, Article 14, says, We affirm the unity and internal consistency of Scripture. And we deny the alleged errors and discrepancies that have not yet been removed, uh, been resolved, violate, I believe he says, uh, the truth claims of the Bible. So the whole idea that we talked about in, in the beginning with origin, we talked about inerrancy and infallibility. Remember we talked about that it's, it's really important for us to see how both of those work together. Inerrancy meaning that the word is accurate. We have, have, have it accurately, it's been accurately transmitted to us uh, over time, but it's infallible and that it is actually true, right? So we, those two work hand in hand and what it tells us is true and we can rely on it. But that isn't the end of the story. There's much more that can be said because there's all sorts of discrepancies that we still have to deal with. And how we deal with those is pretty important, isn't it? If someone tells you, hey, here's a discrepancy, as we're about to watch, we're about to watch Bart Ehrman, and we've seen some of his stuff so far already, he throws some things out there that we kind of need to talk about, all right? And I love that this article uh, acknowledges that there are some things that are not resolved Yet, that doesn't mean that we, we can't trust in the word, okay? And we'll wrestle through this tonight. But let's look at 18. We affirm that the text of scripture is to be interpreted uh, by grammatico-historical exegesis, taking account of its literary forms and devices, and that scripture is to interpret scripture. All right, so we got, we got some, some words here. Uh, someone was giving me a hard time as I walked in this evening, and they said, did you write this stuff down, making these big words up for us? And I didn't. So this comes straight from the Chicago Statements. I had nothing to do with that. They wrote this long before I was born, 1978. Uh, but this word, exegesis, has anyone ever heard of that word? I hope everyone's at least heard of that word. Okay, does, does anyone give, want to give a shot at explaining what that word is? Now that we've got a professor in the room. <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> yes, sir. Ooh. Excellent. Excellent. Nice. That's great. That's, that's really, really a good uh, quick and dirty description. I think, that, I think that fits really well. And we'll let uh, Dr. Thomas um, 
Oh, yeah, see, he said, I'm going to take off my jacket because I'm burning up, so excuse me. I'm not trying to, like, be weird and unzip it slowly. And <laughs> he, he's, his, his, his definition was uh, basically in line with hermeneutics, that you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Uh, you, you, you look at it holistically. I believe I'm paraphrasing you close enough there. But the idea is that we let the Bible speak, we, we pull from it. And we'll talk about this a little bit next week when we get into interpretation and authority. We'll deal with those both all in one week. But it really is a matter of interpretation. How do you interpret scripture? Because there is this popular theme uh, that's just floating around in, in, in our culture that basically scripture is just open to any interpretation you'd like to apply. And so we make the distinction between, between authorial intent and reader response. So authorial intent means that there's an author and he has a message that he's trying to communicate to us. There is an actual truth claim there that we're supposed to be understanding. Reader response is that subjective, hey, what does it mean to you? Have you ever been in a Bible study and everyone sits around and they say, you read the word, and then you say, okay, uh, what does that mean to you? <laughs> and everyone around kind of gives their two cents, and it's, it's not as if there is this objective idea that's supposed to be found or discovered, some theological truth. It's almost as it means whatever you want it to mean. So exegesis is, is in, uh, in contrast to what we call eisegesis. Eisegesis is where you read into the text what you want it to say, which sometimes we do and we got to stop doing it, right? Exegesis is we got to let the, let the scripture speak for itself and we let scripture interpret scripture. Well, what, what does that mean? We're going to move on to this real quick, but I want to ask anyone, do you, do you want, do, when it, someone says interpret scripture by scripture, what, what do you think that means, or what, do you, what would you say that means? Okay, very good. Okay, anybody else? He said cross-reference if you didn't hear him. Anybody else? Nice. Very good. That's great, Rick. Did everybody hear that, or do you need to repeat that? Uh, he says that you basically take um, difficult passages and you interpret those in light of the other passages that are more clear. And so what we do is we say, what does, what does Scripture explicitly say? And we help interpret those things that are implicit, the things that it's not you know, just really, really coming out and saying it and clarifying. That doesn't mean that there won't be difficult things that we need to wrestle with. But what we want to do is we get into that systematic process of saying all Scripture is going to agree with itself. It's internally coherent. And if there's something that's in question, probably it's us. Probably it has something to do with our interpretation. Probably something with our um, pre presuppositions. We're coming to it with an idea, and we're trying to force our idea on it. And so we've got to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So that's what that word is. Chris wanted us to take a minute just to talk about that. Um, but then it says, we deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text or quest for sources lying behind it that leads to the relativizing dehistoricizing, or discounting its teaching or rejecting its claim to authorship. That's the, that's the key that we need to lock into. Is, are we just saying, hey, this is, it's all relative. All truth is relative, including the word. Remember that video we watched in week one? That lady says, well, I read all sacred scriptures. <laughs> she goes, because I, I believe that all of them have a piece of God's word. That's that relativistic perspective. 
and and we, we we've got to absolutely uh, deny that. And then de dehistorizing, basically saying that it isn't historically accurate. It isn't something that we can actually say no, this actually happened. Um, where we're saying hey, it's just a bunch of fairy tales. We would deny that as well. So without further ado, I want to watch a real quick video. This is Bart Ehrman. Um, and then I'm going to have uh, Dr. Heath Thomas come up and hang out with me. And we're going to swap the mic back and forth because we don't have two mics uh, tonight. And we're trying to record with one. But I want you to watch this video with Bart Ehrman. It's a very quick video. He's going to make a lot of assertions, a lot of claims. And it's, it's kind of some sticky stuff. We're not going to answer them right away. One of the last questions I want to invite uh, Heath to help us with is how would you respond to Bart Ehrman's arguments? And I'll let him do that bit. But we're going to preface it. We're going to set the stage with Bart Ehrman here because he's one of the skeptics today. And I want you to think through what, what he says. Uh, there's a little box right here on the front of your handout. Do you see that? It says confronting the skeptics. And it says take notes on Bart Ehrman's arguments. Feel free to do that if you want to. Uh, that's fine, because I actually want to allow us to have a little bit of time, and we've got plenty of time, so we're doing great on time. I would love for you guys to interact with us a little bit tonight. Um, we, have a, we have a really special resource at our disposal, so ask questions. So take some notes when you, when you get through here. Don't, don't, don't come up with too hard of questions, though, right? So we, 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 we have mercy on us. Uh, Maybe we'll email you the answers, right? Give us some time to go research it. But do take some notes. If you have some concerns, uh, we're not going to completely go line by line and answer every assertion that Bart makes. That's not the point of tonight. But what I want to do is I want to have this in our heads and at least know what some of the things are being said uh, are, are, are floating around out there. You are not going to run into a Bart Ehrman usually on the street. But his ideas filter down into popular culture, and you'll hear some version of it throughout your conversations with the layperson. But these kinds of things are floating around. So let's watch this, take some notes, and then we will begin the real meat of the evening. Historians have to have evidence. But what kind of evidence do they look for? The best kind of evidence when dealing with ancient periods is to find evidence that goes back to the time itself. You would love to have contemporary account, written like the next day. Historians would love to have lots of sources. You would like these sources to be independent of one another. You want independent sources who all attest to the same event. You want these independent sources to be consistent with one another. You don't want them to be contradicting each other all over the map. You want them to be agreeing with one another. So you want them to uh, corroborate one another without collaborating with one another. Moreover, you want them to be unbiased toward the subject matter. You don't want them to be skewing things in light of their own self-interest. What kind of sources do we have when it comes to the Gospels? Are they the kind of sources that historians would want when trying to establish what probably happened in the past? I think the answer to that question is no. They are not contemporary to the events they narrate. But our earliest account of Jesus' resurrection is 40 years after the event. You don't have somebody who was there writing about it. None of the authors were eyewitnesses. Paul himself indicates that he was not an eyewitness, and none of the gospel writers was an eyewitness. People, of course, call the gospel books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, they call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because we don't know who wrote these books. They are anonymous. You might not think so because they have the title, The Gospel According to Matthew. Whoever put that title on it was an editor later. The original books are all anonymous, written in the third person. Moreover, the followers of Jesus were Aramaic-speaking peasants from Galilee who were not educated. They couldn't read and write. Of course not. They were fishermen. They didn't go to school. And 
their native language was Aramaic. These books are written in Greek by highly educated, rhetorically trained writers who are skilled in Greek composition. These stories are based on oral reports that have been in circulation for decades. What happens to oral reports in circulation year after year, decade after decade, they get changed. What evidence do we have that the stories about Jesus' death and resurrection have changed? You can read the stories yourself. Simply read Mark's account of Jesus' death and then read John's account of Jesus' death and make a list of everything that happens in both and compare your lists. You will find that there are stunning differences. Let me give you just a list of very quick examples. What day did Jesus die on? That's a simple question. And luckily, we're told in both Mark and John. In Mark's gospel, we're told that Jesus died the day after the Passover meal was eaten in Jerusalem. John tells us explicitly, chapter 19, verse 14, that Jesus died the day before the Passover meal was eaten, on the day of preparation for the Passover. That's different. He couldn't die both days. Did Jesus carry his cross the entire way to Bogotá, or did Simon the Cyrene carry it? It depends which gospel you read. Did both robbers mock Jesus, or did only one of them mock him and the other come to his defense? It depends which gospel you read. Did the curtain in the temple rip in half before Jesus died, or was it after he died? It depends which gospel you read. Who went to the tomb on the third day? Did Mary Magdalene go alone, or did Mary go with other women? Depends which gospel you read. If with other women, how many of them were there? What were their names? And which ones were they? Depends which gospels you read. Was the stone rolled away before the women got to the tomb, or not? What did they see in the tomb? Did they see a man? Did they see two men? Or did they see an angel? Depends which gospel you read. What were they told to tell the disciples? Were the disciples supposed to stay in Jerusalem to see Jesus, or were they supposed to go to Galilee? Depends which gospel you read. Did the women tell anybody, or were they silent about it? Depends which gospel you read. Did the disciples ever leave Jerusalem, or did they leave and go to Galilee? Depends which gospel you read. My conclusion, these are not reliable historical accounts. There are too many discrepancies. The accounts are based on oral traditions that have been in circulation for decades. Year after year, Christians try to convert others by telling them stories to convince them that Jesus was raised from the dead, and they change their stories while trying to convince people. These authors were not eyewitnesses. They're Greek-speaking Christians living many years after the fact. They're telling stories that Christians have been telling all these years. There was nobody there taking notes. Some of the stories were invented. Many were changed. For this reason, these accounts are not as useful as historians would like as historical sources. All right, we can go home now. Come on up, Heath. All right, so we will get back to that here in just a moment. Um, but I'd like to take a couple of minutes and uh, ask Heath to, yeah, you, you do what you need to do. Uh, talk to us a little bit. First off, um, I want to know a little bit about you, Heath. What do you do? Uh, what's your main ministry? And kind of what motivates you to get up and do what you do every day? Well, it's great to be with you. My name is Heath Thomas. I'm the Dean of the Hobbes College at OBU. I'm also a professor of Old Testament, and uh, I've been teaching Old Testament for, uh, well, I don't know, a long time, maybe 15, 17 years, something about like that. Um, I uh, fell in love with the Old Testament uh, in the late 90s while I was doing Hebrew poetry and uh, just absolutely fell in love with the, the, um, the beauty of, of Hebrew poetry and how it speaks to our lives. So uh, I was at OBU. I was an English major at OBU. And then I did my master's degree at Southwestern Seminary and then went overseas and did my PhD in England. And uh, my area that I've done most of my work on is the Old Testament. So a lot of the questions that uh, uh, Dr. Ehrman brings up are really good questions. 
uh, but it's, it's much more serious than he lets on, especially if you turn to the Old Testament. And we'll be talking about some of that tonight. Uh, before I came to OBU, I've been at OBU for two years. Prior to that, I was at uh, Southeastern Seminary at Wake Forest, North Carolina, where I was professor of Old Testament and Hebrew out there. I was also the director of the PhD program out at Southeastern. And uh, if you don't know where Wake Forest is, Wake Forest is in the Raleigh-Durham area. And some of the folks that we regularly ran, in, ran into and served uh, at my church that I, I was at uh, were students from UNC Chapel Hill and students from Duke University. So these questions that he's bringing are not hypothetical. Students would come into those classes, and then they would come back to the church and say, I don't even know what, I don't even know what to think anymore. And so one of the things that I'm passionate about is helping equip the church to read Scripture better, to help them understand what Scripture is doing and saying, to help you figure out, all right, what is this thing that we call the Bible, and how do I read it? And how does, in some weird way, this text make an impact on my life? And so we're going to talk about some of those things tonight. Um, I, I, as I say, you know, uh, Ehrman's raised some very good questions, particularly related to the Gospels. We'll talk about some of that. Uh, but really, it's only the tip of the iceberg. And one of the things uh, that I think is an absolute gift to the church is... Uh, frankly, these kinds of events to where you flag up these issues for our, our people. And you say, hey, there's something to see here, and we need to see it so we can read Scripture more faithfully and then engage our world more faithfully with the gospel. Because I don't know about you, but I hear smart guys like this talk all the time. And it makes me think, oh my goodness, the they're really smart. You know, they've got books with Oxford University Press. Surely they're telling me the absolute truth, aren't they? Well, sometimes when you read a book, somebody's got an axe to grind. I'm not saying he's being disingenuous. He actually believes what he's saying and based on evidence. But is that the whole story? No, it's not. So we'll talk about some of that tonight. That's why I'm here, to help us think through some of these things. And uh, I look forward to talking with you. So let's go ahead and jump right in. So our first question, and you guys can take notes on your handout. Uh, it's a really broad question, big question. Can we trust our Bible? Uh, how many times have you heard someone say, hey, you can't trust that. Uh, that, that? That isn't accurate. Has anyone ever heard that assertion? I was sitting in the lunchroom one day, and a guy told me, he goes, hey, man, you know that it's been changed over and over and over throughout the times. Uh, we don't have the original manuscripts. We don't have the original copies. No one knows. Uh, and it was one of those, those moments that my apologetics training came in, sprung into action, and I said, do you have any books at home? He goes, yeah, I got lots of books. I said, awesome. I said, uh, how many of them are the original autograph? <laughs> He said, none of them. I said, what about that newspaper right here on our lunch table? And we started talking about that. He goes, you know what? I never thought about that. So we take for granted that these things are reliable in other areas, but then when we look at the Bible, somehow we have a different set of criteria. So I ask you, Dr. Thomas, big, broad question. 
Can we trust our Bible? Yeah, that's a big question, isn't it? Can we trust our Bible? And it, it uh, makes me think of, uh, you know, going to, uh, if, if, if you are a car salesman, please forgive me. <laughs> okay. But it reminds me of, you know, I'm going to buy a car. I go to a lot. Maybe you've had this experience. You go, you look at the car, and then someone kind of saunters up. Hey, how's it going? How are you doing? And uh, your immediate reaction as the guy on the lot is, can I trust this person? Uh, That's not an unusual kind of experience. Can I trust this? And when we think about the Bible, it's natural, actually, if you're a thinking person at all, to ask, can I trust what I'm reading? But, you know, once you really start to dig a little bit on that question, um, it makes you think about some, some other things. What do I mean by can I trust the Bible? Now, I trust my wife, right? I've known her for a long time, been married to her for a long time. We've had four kids together. We've lived in different countries together, right? I know her. I trust her. I trust her right? Do we mean, do I trust the Bible like I trust my wife? Well, it's not quite the same. Usually what we mean when we say, do I trust the Bible, we're asking a number of questions about the Bible, and probably in a room like this, when you hear that question, do I trust the Bible, you're thinking about a lot of different kinds of things, and so I've categorized them into some areas. So when I say, do I trust the Bible or can I trust the Bible? Some of you, when we ask that question, we're actually asking, does the Bible present to me reliable historical or factual information? Is the Bible trustworthy? Can I trust it? And what you really mean by that is, is this historically and factually trustworthy? And I can gladly say to you, yes, the Bible that you hold in your hands is historically and factually trustworthy. It's reliable. You say, well, Heath, why in the world do you say that? I mean, didn't we hear Bart Ehrman saying these things? Well, if we're asking uh, about, you know, is it presenting to us historical and factual information well or accurately, there's a number of things that we need to unpack on that. So first of all, does the Bible present to us accurate information about, let's say, the first century A.D., the time in which these texts were uh, purported to be written, okay? Roughly the first century A.D. Does it it present uh, data or information that is resonant with that time frame, or is there like a reference to George Bush in the New Testament documents? The reality is this. When you read the New Testament documents, what you find is it does present data, information that is resonant with what we have in the first century. And how do I know it's resonant? Well, because we've got all sorts of other data that corroborates the biblical material in terms of social customs, ways of living, social groups. You remember those Sadducees, Pharisees? You remember those guys? Hey, guess what? Early writers of that time talk about those same groups. 
In other words, what I'm saying is the social divisions, the conflict between Rome and the Jewish people, all of that is resonant with the time period from which these New Testament documents come from. But guess what? The Bible is not just the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? What I would say is absolutely. One of the most interesting things, and I have, I like show and tell, right? My grade school days never left me. I love show and tell. I've got some show and tell. We have some good resources up here, and some of them are actually really heavy lifting, but they're really good because they help us understand when we're talking about the time frames from which the Old Testament texts were written, they present life, social customs, people, places, dates, events that are resonant with other uh, texts uh, that talk about the same time frame. So is the Old Testament reliable? Yes. Is the New Testament reliable? Yes. Well, what about those things that Ehrman brings up about things like, uh, you know, John and Mark's uh, differentiation between uh, the day that Jesus died? Well, we can talk about that in just a minute, but it's worse. Did you know we have four Gospels, one Jesus? If the Gospels were just interested in, you remember Joe Friday? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you don't. But there was a detective that said, just the facts, ma'am, only the facts, right? You know that? Well, is the Bible in giving us just the facts, only the facts? I'm talking just the facts. That's it. No embellishment, no contextualization. Just give me the cold, hard facts. No, it's not interested in just doing that. The Bible is not interested in just doing that, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, because guess what? That's not the way the Bible came to us. God gave and inspired uh, the writers of the scriptures over roughly, listen to me, well over a thousand years. It's written in three languages. And there were literary conventions, right? If I were to talk about a tweet today, right, you would know what I'm talking about. But guess what? If I used the word tweet 15 years ago, people would think I'm crazy. 15 years can make a big difference in terms of literary conventions. Do you know that the Bible presents different literary conventions based on the time frame in which it was written? So there's four Gospels. Do you know that they're written, they're all talking about Jesus, but there are four Gospels, one Jesus. Did you know in the Old Testament you have two histories? Did you know that? Most people, when they think of histories, they think of the historical books. Namely, they think 1st, 2nd Samuel and 1st, 2nd Kings, and that's usually what people think of. But do you know, really, the big history is from Genesis all the way to the book of Kings, and then you have another history in the Old Testament, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Do you know that? Two big blocks of history. Why do you need Gospels? Two big in the Old Testament. Why do you need that? Won't one do it? I mean, if we're always just and only just interested in giving the facts, why do we have two Old Testament histories and four presentations of the gospel? Why? Because each of these presentations just gives different facets of the truth. Not that there's different truths, but it's like a diamond. How many of you guys like diamonds? Some of you guys don't like diamonds as much as some of the ladies in the room, right? But if you have a diamond, you have one diamond, how many facets are on that diamond? 
right? Each facet contributes to the beauty and the reflective power of that diamond. Do you know that's what's going on in the scriptures? Two histories, one fa- uh, two facets of the same diamond of data that the scripture's trying to present about the story of the world, the story of Israel, and the story of the future. What's going to happen? Same thing with the four Gospels. Four Gospels, one Jesus. Four facets of the diamond of the presentation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not that these texts are somehow unreliable or untrustworthy because we got more than one of them. It's that these texts reflect more beautifully and in a grander way the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. It's not that these texts are unreliable. The four Gospels, the two story histories, tell us even more of the reliability of these uh, scriptures. So do I trust the Bible? Yes. It gives accurate historical information, cultural information, uh, uh, sociological information about that time frame. I see. Does that help? Okay. Second thing, is it reliable uh, when it comes to things like the subject matter that it purports to convey? When we say, is the Bible trustworthy? Can I trust it? Some of you might be thinking, well, is it really trustworthy? Well, that drives us to a question of what does the Bible aim to do? If you're trying to read the Bible as if you would a history book, let me just tell you, you're probably off on the wrong foot. If you're reading the Bible like you would a science book, let me just tell you, you're probably off on the wrong foot. Why? Because the internal testimony of the Scripture is not, this book is an encyclopedia, this book is a dictionary. No. This is how the Word of God describes itself, okay? And I love this. This is one of the chief texts that talk about the reality and the function and the purpose of Scripture. It's Paul when he writes to Timothy. Some of you know this, but listen to what Paul says to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures. And can I just put something in here for you? You have known the sacred sacred scriptures. When Paul is writing to Timothy, The New Testament is not written yet. So what is Paul talking? I mean, maybe some of the, the, the Pauline material is written. Maybe something from Peter. Maybe something from James. But certainly not the New Testament. So when he's talking about the sacred scriptures, what is, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about what we know as the Old Testament, the law, prophets, and Psalms, as Jesus describes in Luke 24, right? So he's talking about the Old Testament. And what does he say about the Old Testament? And then we can, by analogy, extend that outward to the New Testament. He says this, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then this very famous verse, all scripture is inspired by God or really breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting for training and righteousness in order that or so that the man of God may be complete, whole, person of integrity, 
equipped for every good work. So what is the purpose of Scripture? Well, you might say, well, we got to read the Bible for the facts. Well, guess what? Encyclopedias contain facts. And when you're interested in a fact, what do you do with an encyclopedia? You pull it off the shelf, or Wikipedia, right? You go, you look at your Wikipedia fact, and then what do you do? You put it back. God's Word is no encyclopedia. It contains facts, but listen to me. It's not an encyclopedia that you can just put back on the shelf when you're done with it. God's Word literally is breathed out by God. Two things uh, are, are that way in, in, the, in the Bible. You understand that, right? Think about when God breathed into the nose, the nostrils of the man. Do you know what happened when he breathed out his breath into the nostrils of a man? Do you know what the Hebrew says? Or the, the, uh, the Hebrew text reads how it reads? It says that that, that terracotta figure became a living thing, a living being. Some translations read a living soul. Now, if you use that as an analogy of what's going on here, God doesn't just drop, you know, airdrop a book onto people. He breathes his breath out into the word of God. It's alive. And I love what Spurgeon uh, Charles Spurgeon says about Scripture. He says, listen, the Bible is like a caged lion. What we need to do as the people of God, especially preachers, is let the lion loose. Now, why is that? Because the Bible is alive. It's there to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's there to correct us, rebuke us, give us the answer to, Lord, you've saved us, but then how shall we live? Well, Scripture is God's gift to help us understand. What's the right way? What's the wrong way? Scripture is that gift. Yes, it contains facts, but if we're reading like an encyclopedia book, we're probably off on the wrong foot. Does it contain history? Yes. But if you're reading it like you would, you know, a modern historiography or something like that, you're probably off on the wrong foot because what Scripture says about itself is that it is given by God to make you and I wise into salvation through Jesus Christ and change our lives. So we can be equipped for every good work. Okay? So is the Bible reliable? Can we trust it? Yes, and we can trust it to do that, what I've just described. Help us understand who Jesus is. Help us understand what it is to live well and faithfully as we follow Jesus. It does that too. And then there's some other things that when we say, can I trust the Bible, we can talk about that as well. It's, it's, is it reliable when it comes to science and math and things like that? Well, listen. You're not going to find in the Bible, right, how to build an atomic bomb, okay? You're also not going to find uh, geometry, modern geometry in the Bible. You're just not going to find it. But you know, the Bible, in its own testimony, speaks to everything. Did you know that? Why? Why do I say that? Because the Bible tells us about God's creation, and in Genesis 1 and then Genesis uh, uh, 2 as well, what we have is God has created the world, and guess what we know about the world? 
based on creation. It is intelligible. We can look at things and go, hey, that makes sense. That works. Why does that work? And because God has made us inquisitive, we can search out the beauties of God's creation and figure it out. And uh, that, so does the Bible speak to science and math, things like that? Well, not directly if we're trying to, you know, create a mathematical theorem out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Probably not going to work. But does the Bible address the hard sciences that we would normally call them? Yes, it does. But in ways that are surprising, endlessly interesting, and ways that probably we might not think of unless we have a really robust doctrine of creation that we got from Scripture. So that's, that's my start. That's good. You guys wrote all that down, didn't you? Awesome. Man, you hit on a lot of really, really good points. So I want to try to synthesize some of it. So if I'm getting, getting the story right, so I'm a little slow, so I want to make sure that I say what I think happened and you can fix whatever I mess up. Uh, your basic claim is that it depends on what we mean when we say, can we trust it? So we've got to clarify, what are you saying? What do you mean? Trust it in what area? And your analogy is that, can I trust it? It's not saying, is it going to answer every question I would ever have? You're saying it has to do with a particular type of trust. And that is, it's going to lead me accurately to the knowledge of God, his holiness, his righteousness, and how I ought to live uh, accordingly. We talked earlier about uh, authority, you know, what you say, descriptive versus prescriptive. So you're kind of going down that road a little bit, aren't you? But so let me... Let me ask this question or actually make an assertion because I'm going to move on to the next one. But I want you, I, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. The old theologians, uh, the natural the guys that did natural theology, they would say that I can read both books of God. Nature is one of his books. And special revelation is another. Um, a quick 30 second response to some people pit those together. Some say, no, it's an either-or, isolate them, separate them. I agree with your first claim. This book isn't supposed to really tell me everything about that book. But can you speak a little bit to that tension that's there? Yeah, one of the beautiful things about Scripture, um, and this is very important. I can't tell you how important what I'm about to say actually is. Do you know why there's such a uh, kind of conflict in today's world uh, about science and faith? Okay, can I just put it in those hard and fast terms, is because we've, we, we really have, and it's true in our churches, we've lost the doctrine of creation. Absolutely lost it. So when Jesus comes, what does he do? Well, he saves my soul. Well, does he save my body? Does he, in the words of Paul, in the letter to the Colossians, does he reconcile all things to God? Now, that's what God, according to Paul, did with Christ. Through Christ, God reconciled all things back to himself. Now, I'm not smart, but all things sounds like a lot. All things sounds a little bigger than your soul or mine. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul means. And we know it, don't we, from John 3.16? You know this, right? For God so loved the world. But Somehow, when we read that, we just think, my soul. That's not what John says. 
For God so loved the world that he, and you're going to have to forgive me. This is how I learned it. That he gave his only begotten son. That what happened? That's it? No. That whosoever, what? Believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then we forget John 3, 17. So did Jesus come to condemn the world? No. Right? But that the world might be reconciled through this Christ. We've lost the doctrine of creation. So when you're asking questions about pitting natural uh, theology versus you know, scriptural theology, here's the reality. God has given us a world that's intelligible. I know this from my grandfather. Do you know how? He was a farmer. My grandfather knew when to plant, knew when to plow, knew when to harvest. How did he know that? Because he looked at the world around him. You know, Scripture teaches us this. Just read the book of Proverbs. There is an intelligibility of the world around us. In other words, there is a grain to the universe that's recognizable, and we can figure it out because God gave us a brain and a rationality to figure it out. That's a good thing, but we already know that from the doctrine of creation. So what I would say is natural theology, scriptural theology, or biblical theology aren't pitted against one another. Here's the way that I, I like to think of it, and I get this from a theologian. What we need to understand is, yes, you can view the world and understand, wow, the world is unbelievably well-designed. It's intelligible. Isn't it strange that we are the only people in the universe, so far as we know? We are it. And oh my goodness, isn't it weird that this third rock from the sun sustains life? How weird is that? And we can raise questions like, how did that happen? Why did that happen? But just on our own, we might get to the point where we say there must be some sort of divine being that set it this way. But it won't get us to the reality of the God who made the universe has sent his son to redeem, and I'm going to say a crazy word here, he came to redeem the universe back to the Lord. Uh, not just my son. No. All things. How do I know this? Book ends of the Bible. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis, uh, Revelation 21. Guess what happened? Behold, I see a new heaven and a new earth. Well, what's the book ends of the Bible helping us see? God created the world, and God redeemed the world. And if you go down, Revelation 21, 5, what happens? Jesus is on the throne, and he says something amazing. Look, I make all things new. That includes you and me, but it's bigger than you and me. So we need to recapture the doctrine of creation. There's a South African theologian called Adrio Kunik, and he says it this way. The more we capture the doctrine of creation, the more we'll understand the doctrine of salvation. The less we understand the doctrine of creation, the less we'll understand the doctrine of sal uh, creation, the less we'll understand the doctrine of salvation. So what I would say to you is, look, it's not about pitting uh, natural theology versus the Bible. Scriptures are the spectacles, the glasses that we need to see the natural world aright. Does that make sense? We need spectacles. Why? Because we're broken in sin. That's why. That's a nice biblical category. 
We need something to help train our eyes to see the world the right way. That's what scripture helps us do. Does that help? Thank you. Um, maybe one day we'll have just a whole session on that because I think that would be really interesting to to open up. And uh, that's that's one of my personal passions is that relationship and all the things you said. I, I, I love that because I think I think he's he's exactly right. Um, when we are looking at the doctrine of creation incorrectly or insufficiently. Uh, we're doing all sorts of other things to our theology as well, right? And so I want to move on to the next question here. Uh, why is it important for believers to have an understanding of these challenges? So we went through some of the challenges with Bart. We haven't addressed them yet. But why would you say that it's important for people like us, people in this room, not just professors like you, uh, why is it important for us to even care about these? Isn't this just ivory tower stuff? Great question. How many of you know somebody? I hope some of you do. How many of you actually talk to people? Now, I'm an introvert. You may not believe this, but I'm, I'm like off the charts introverted. You may not believe it, but it's actually true. God does work miracles, I'm telling you. Okay, so I'm actually an introvert. It wouldn't bother me at all to be with these books all day by myself. But you know what? God had a big laugh, and he said, that's not going to be your story. Your story is you're going to be working with people day in and day out, day in and day out. And you know what that's made me do? It's made me go to the Lord and say, God, teach me how to love my neighbor, because I don't want to. It's hard. But guess what? God kind of has a big laugh and says, well, that's what you're going to do, so you better learn how to love your neighbor. The reason why we take seriously the challenges of guys like Bart Ehrman or the questions that come when we deal with real-life people, not theories, but real-life people, is because we want to love our neighbor well. Do you know guys like Bart Ehrman? You're going to hear about this, I think, from uh, one of the uh, lessons, maybe next week, from a guy named Craig Evans. A uh, guy named Craig Evans is a radical Christian apologist, New Testament scholar, just like Bart Ehrman. They're friends. They, they talk to one another. They don't sit on one side of the room, on this guy on the other side of the room, and just kind of lob bombs at each other. They talk about their differences. And some of their differences are fundamental about the realities of Scripture, the Word of God, the New Testament. And they give their evidence, and they talk about it and debate. And guess what? Guys like Bart Ehrman, they're not, they're not uh, persuaded. But here you have a guy... Craig Evans, who loves his neighbor enough to actually talk to him like a real live person, say, okay, well, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. I got to think about that. And you take them seriously, listen to them so that you can, yes, respond to their questions, but help them maybe in a strange way, you're building a bridge to faith. And that's what apologetics are. Apologetics aren't, and that's a fancy, you know, $10 word. Apologetics means a defense of the faith. That's it. Apologetics is not about winning an argument. Apologetics is about giving a faithful testimony or a faithful witness of the faith. That's it. Apologetics is not about winning an argument against an unbeliever. Apologetics is really about loving your neighbor well, hearing what they have to say, and saying, okay, well, you know, as I, as I see it, those 
facts are inaccurate. I know you got them from Wikipedia, that paragon of good information, but that's not accurate. And can I, can I show you some of the evidence that, that I've got? So I would just say, look, why do we need to take these challenges seriously? Because you and I are going to deal with real people who have real questions. And if we want to love our neighbor well, we need to take their, their questions seriously. Let me give you an example of this. When I lived in England, my wife and kids and I lived in England for four years, and I was at a university there, University of Gloucestershire. It sounds like Worcestershire, but it's Gloucestershire. Gloucestershire is a county just south of Worcestershire, strangely enough. <coughs> I had a, a friend there uh, who was in the sociology department, and she was a teacher. And, you know, in the, it, where I was, there were a lot of people from all over the world. And so we had this weird lunch bunch that we would go and have lunch together. Now, not everybody around that table were, was a believer. In fact, there were a good number of folks that weren't. There were some, you know, studying the Bible just purely because it was an academic interest, you know, like you would study Shakespeare or something. But I remember after two years of lunch bunch, one of my colleagues from the sociology department, I'd gotten to know her. She'd gotten to know a number of us who were believers. She looked at me one day and said, Heath, can I ask you a serious question? I said, sure. She said, isn't it enough that Jesus was just a good moral teacher? He doesn't need to be like this weird son of God guy that rose from the dead, right? It's enough that he's just a, a good moral teacher, right? I mean, can't that just be good enough for me to just agree with you on that? That's good, right? And do you know what I said? That's after two years, two years. I said, you know, that is an awesome question. Let's talk about that. And so for the next two hours, we talked about that. And after I explained, look, it doesn't work that Jesus is a good moral teacher because the Bible doesn't give Jesus as the picture of a good moral teacher. This guy claimed to be the son of God. He actually claimed to be God. So if he is just a good moral teacher when he was claiming that he is God, he's a lunatic. He's not a good person. He's a liar. He's not a kind, you know, a wise Yoda He's crazy, and he's not worthy to be worshipped at all. So I explained to her what the biblical picture of Jesus was, and after two hours, you know what she said to me? Huh, well, that kind of makes sense. Well, thanks for answering my question. Now, this is the scary part. She said, when I was 12, I asked my vicar that same question. And I can't do her British accent, but she said, the vicar looked at me and said, stop trying to be so clever. So what happened? The vicar, or the pastor of her church, she asked a, a legitimate question when she was 12 years old. Instead of loving his neighbor well, this vicar shut her down. And guess what happened? It set her on a trajectory towards deeper and deeper unbelief. Tell you a little bit more about her story. She's Wiccan. Do you know what a Wiccan is? Okay, her, her partner, which is not her husband, it's just her partner, is a Wiccan high priest. And in those areas around the university, it was this area called the Cotswolds. And in the Cotswolds, Wicca is a huge uh, religion. It's kind of a pagan uh, religion. And it just, I mean, when she said that, it struck me. Gosh, 
she wasn't loved very well by a Christian. Why? Why do we need to engage these challenges? Because they're serious. Can I just say, if we're going to love our neighbor well, we need to take their questions seriously. Not everybody is out to get the Christian faith. There are some people that are. Maybe there might just be people who have questions, and instead of getting mad at them, we need to allow the, the Spirit of the Lord to remind us, hey, dude, tap the brakes. Don't try and blow them up. Love them well. So why do we need to address these challenges? Because we want to love our neighbor well. Second reason why I would say that we need to love uh, or accept these challenges is because growth is good for us. Exertion is good for us. Why is it that we know this when it comes to exercise, dieting, sports, academics? We know exertion yields things in us that has value. If I exercise, okay, we're not going to talk about New Year's resolutions, okay? I don't want to meddle, right? But if I exercise and if I diet, there are positive benefits, and we all know that. But when it comes to the things of God, it's like, don't make me think. Don't make me think. Well, listen, let me just tell you, exertion in Scripture yields, I I promise you, it can, not always, but it can yield a deeper, richer faith. So don't back away from the challenges because, ah, I can lose my faith. Well, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. There might be times where you go, man, Holy cow, that would make me lose my faith. You know what? I can tell you unequivocally there is something, if this were ever proved historically true, that would make us lose the faith. Every single one in here, unless you're not rational. If there was never a man named Jesus who lived, that would make us lose the faith. Do you know why? Scripture hinges on Jesus. And if he was not a real person, guess what? The Christian faith is a lie. Good news. He was a real person, and everybody, everybody who's a scholar who actually thinks about this stuff knows Jesus was real. But then the big question, did he rise from the grave? Everybody agrees that he's real, but did he arise from the grave? Guess what? If they find the body of Jesus somehow, Christian faith is a lie. Why? Because the Bible said that Jesus bodily rose from the grave and now is ascended at the right hand of God, wherever that is in authority and power now. So if you present to be the body of Jesus, this faith that we hold is not true. So listen, you got to think about these things. I have good news. They haven't found the body of Jesus, right? And they won't because Christ is risen indeed. But you got to think about these things to love your neighbor well and because, hey, it's good for you to exert yourself in these challenges. That's excellent. Um, it brings to mind, I heard one time someone saying, I can't remember, they said, hate isn't the worst thing. Uh, apathy is. Uh, to be apathetic is to say, you're not even worth my time. You're not even worth responding to. Uh, and, and, and that isn't something that we should engage in. We shouldn't become apathetic to those who have real questions and real struggles. And I, I love your story. I have a similar story. Uh, last week, actually, I was in Southern California. I have a good friend who's, a, who's an engineer at NASA, JPL, their Jet Propulsion Lab in California. We're having dinner, and uh, his family's a very scientifically astute, super intellectuals, awesome, awesome people. But his dad actually left the faith 
um, and is slowly coming back, but it has caused so much turmoil within their family. Uh, and here's the rub. Here, here's, here's, here's how it happened. Uh, he had some questions. He's a doctor. His, this kid's dad is a doctor, a medical doctor. And he's, he's, he's hearing all this evolution stuff, hearing all these things, and he's, he's, he's hooked up with all these intellectuals on the other side. And he went to his pastor and asked for help to, you know, wade these waters. And he said, that's not, that's not worth wasting your time on. Well, do you know who was there ready to disciple him? Yeah. These other people. And it ended up, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I won't say my friend's name, but I'm so glad that for whatever reason, the providence of God saw it fit that he would make it out of that. Now he's an active scientist who is on fire for the Lord, struggling, but he's, part of his ministry is helping his father connect those dots. But I think that's what we have to do. We, we are part of that. We are bridge builders. We are to put those planks in front of people. Wherever their struggle is, that's where we meet them in humility and love. So I, 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 love, I love that. And I, you know, it's interesting. We're, we were talking about this a little bit last uh, this upstairs. We were talking a little bit tonight. Michael Kruger, who's, who's a well-known, respected scholar, and we've recommended a couple of his books. Uh, uh, and he actually was a student of Bart Ehrman's. He studied under Bart Ehrman, and his response was different. And you had said that you've known several who have left the faith because of Bart's claims. And thank God that guys like Michael Kruger said, you know what, that's an interesting question. That's an interesting assertion. Let me dig deeper into it. And Michael Kruger actually says that studying under Ehrman is what drove him to get his PhD in this stuff. Uh, and actually become an active apologist on the other side of it. So those are two great points. Uh, we have about five minutes left. Oh I know. So I'm going to skip over question four and probably don't really have a ton of time to go into six, but you can do what you want with it. But I really want to hit five, if that's okay with you. So the question is, is the Bible to be taken literally? And I'm going to let you just have at it, but stop about five till so we can close. Um, but I really want to hear what you have to say on this, because this is something I hear Christians saying, not unbelievers, Christians saying, no, we really don't take that literally, do we? So help us unpack that. Literary genre, authority, all of that good stuff. So uh, this is probably a, a, a one of the biggest questions I've gotten asked over really... Um, certainly the past 15 years since I've been in seminaries or um, university contexts, is the Bible, should I take the Bible literally? It's not literally true, right? Literally, literally. And usually what people mean is, are all the facts right? Okay, that's usually what they mean. But I just kind of want to throw a little monkey wrench in this, okay? I want to take you back. I like stories. Do you know there was a guy who lived, he was one of the major and probably the most significant uh, uh, theologians and pastors in the history of the Christian church. His name was Augustine. You might know him as Augustine. He wrote a book called The Confessions, but he also wrote a lot more than that. In fact, he wrote two commentaries on the book of Genesis. Okay? Now, one of his commentaries uh, was very interesting in, in, in terms of its title, especially pertinent to this question. It was entitled On the Literal interpretation of Genesis, okay, which I've just translated in English from the Latin, all right? On the literal interpretation of Genesis, and in that commentary, 
literal interpretation of Genesis, do you know what Augustine said about the seven days of creation? They are the seven ages of the world. What? Oh, there's like six 24-hour days, right? Yeah, well, when he says the, the, the literal interpretation of Genesis, he has no evolutionary axe to grind, right? Evolution wasn't invented, right? Uh, in the 4th century A.D. It's not even around. So what's he talking about? Well, he says that when you read Genesis 1, what you see is actually seven ages of the earth, or the world. Day 6 is when the church is around. Day 7 isn't even a day. It's the age in which the kingdom of Christ is, when he reigns eternally. It's the uh, new heavens, new earth picture that I was talking about in Revelation 21. Now, I want to ask you, is he reading the Bible literally? You might say, no. Mm -mm. He's reading it what we would call figuratively. But you ask Augustine, he's saying, no, this is what the text says. We have to be careful with our terminology. Is the Bible literal? Here's the reality. The Bible is 66 books. Do you know how many different genres there are in the Bible? And when I say literary genres, I'm talking about poetry, narrative, prose. When I say God is a rock, do I literally mean he's gray and stony? Or when I say God is like, uh, you know, a river, is he wet? No, these are figures of speech. So when we're reading scripture, we're reading 66 books that are not all written in the same way. They're not even poetry. They're not all prose, right? You've got poetry, you've got prose, you've got figures of speech, you've got all sorts of stuff going on in this text. And something we have to come to is our desire to make the Bible literal might actually be stripping it of what God has actually made it to be. What? Yes. So if I were to say, God is my rock, God is my shield, does God want us to think of him as in any other way than a rock or a shield? Well, what is the literal meaning of that? God didn't give us the literal meaning. He gave us the figure. And so if we want to say God is reliable, that's a nice way to talk about God as being a rock. What about secure? What's the difference between secure and reliable? Are either of those outside the bounds? No. What about shield? Protection? Defense? Care? There's lots of words that we could use to get at that idea. But we don't need to say, well, what that text really means is God is this. That No, God didn't give us that. He gave us God is a rock, God is a shield. So when we use that language, literal, is the Bible literally true? We need to take care about what the Bible is doing. It, how is it trying to communicate? Now, you might be saying, well, you're not answering my question. I know I'm not answering your question. I've already said I think the Bible is absolutely clear and reliable when it comes to historical data, when it comes to social customs, facts. Absolutely it is. We don't need to be concerned about that. We don't need to, like, throw up our hands in despair. And if you don't know how to reconcile all that, again, show and tell. I promise you they will help. 
But is the Bible literally true? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Now, what is the literal truth conveyed? Well, uh, I mean, he cares for us. But there's all sorts of connections there to God, the good shepherd, in Ezekiel. Did you know that? Is Jesus invoking the care of God, even as he claims that he is the good shepherd? Yes, actually. There's a lot of stuff going on there through the image or through the figure. Is any of that inaccurate? No. It's all there. But if we want to reduce the Bible to one thing, I, I would just say we got to be careful. we got to let Scripture breathe the way it wants to breathe. I don't know how else to say that. But you might keep pressing me. But is it true? Yes, of course it's true. Absolutely true. I like these, uh, uh, a way I describe this is the Bible tells the true story of the whole world. It's the true story. It's normative. God literally created the world. Yes. Guess what? He literally raised up this people from this guy, Abram. And through this people came a man, Jesus. And guess what? From this man, Jesus, we have redemption, salvation, forgiveness. All that's true. The Bible is normative in that way. But it's, it's, not, it's the story of the whole world. There's nothing in this world that lies outside the scope of Scripture. Okay, so is it literally true? Should we read the Bible literally? Yes, right? But let the Scripture do and say how it wants to do and say. Does that help a little bit? Anything else? Let's give Heath a hand. We've covered a lot of ground tonight, and uh, maybe next week um, we can mess around a little bit. I know you, you copiously took notes on Bart Ehrman's assertions, and you're just dying to hear us answer those. Uh, maybe we can field some of those next week. Uh, but I recommend, um, I took that video, someone else made it, but that video is out of context. I just want you to know that he doesn't. He, that's like that's not all there is to that story. Uh, that's actually a debate between Bart Ehrman and uh, Mike Lycona, and it's actually a really good uh, two hours if you have to watch it. So you can actually hear the real guy answering it, who he was making those assertions in front of. Um, he he would do it much better justice than than I would. But we may be able to touch on some of those next week. Uh, main ideas for tonight. Main ideas for tonight. We can trust our Bible. It is true in what it proclaims to us. It is not to be pitted against natural theology because God wrote both books. He wrote nature, <laughs> right? Creation. And he wrote the word of God, which has to do with his holy nature, communicating how we might be saved, how he would redeem, as he said, the entire universe. There's a lot of skeptics out there, and what we have to do is lovingly answer them. Are you going to have all the answers? No. There's not a single person on this planet who can sit down and answer every single question brought to them. But what we have to do is with humility and love is see that person as a person 
with a genuine question. And it isn't just like we'll say, okay, well, uh, I'll just defer you to someone else. I actually recommend that you get in there and struggle with them <laughs> because you will learn so much through that process. And you know what, in my experience, is when they see you humbly searching for truth alongside them, that's actually convincing to them. Because it helps them realize that you're not just bought in. You're not just taking this, I'm buying some, someone else's word. You're willing to investigate. You're willing to wrestle because you think this is important. So I, I, I really appreciate uh, Heath spending time with us tonight. A lot of good stuff we covered. Next week will be our final week. And we're going to deal with interpretation. So I love that he left on this note, and that's why I wanted you to end on this note, because it sets us up for next week. Uh, the Word of God can be accurate, it can be reliable, and you can still mess it up. <laughs> so we've got to talk about interpretation. All right, so next week, be sure to show up for that. Let's pray and uh, be dismissed. Uh, I'm sure that... Uh, Heath would love to talk to you about all of these books over here. So feel free to come on up after class and, and look at these and talk with Heath and I. And, and uh, it'll be a great time. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this evening. Father, we pray that you are glorified in this time as we come together as students of you and your word. And Father, I thank you for this time that we've been given I thank you for the life of Heath and, and that you have set him apart to do this special work to equip students at a Christian university, but not just that, Father, but to be a witness for you and your truth everywhere he goes, Father. And I pray that we would be inspired tonight to do the exact same thing. With whatever gifts, talents, and resources you've given each and every one of us, I pray that we are faithful in glorifying you with them. I pray that we engage this culture lovingly, intellectually, and with humility, Father. That we would have time for people. That we would be willing to investigate and to discuss tough questions. And Father, may we have a high view of your word and its authority over our lives as it is prescriptive, telling us how we ought to live being holy as you are holy, Father. Please bless every person in this room tonight, Father, as they go out into the world to continue the ministry and the work that you prepared for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.